You're listening to the Bass Lessons Melbourne podcast. Episode 22, Ben Wicks. how you doing this is Craig here from Bass Lessons Melbourne and today for uh, the player profile video I'm joined by Mr Ben Wicks. Hey. How are you man? It's good to be here. Yeah thanks for coming around taking the time out and bringing your your gear with you. Yeah 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 brought some toys. Yeah so um, maybe just tell us a little bit about your your journey bass wise how you got into it how you know did your upbringing affect it you know yeah. music or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, um, neither of my parents played, um, but music was a big part of the household. There was always music, there was always... Uh, Good music? Songs. Well, you know, that's... Mum had a thing for Tim Finn, but outside of that, um, you know, lots of Bob Marley and, and um, lots of folk, lots of Billy Bragg. I grew up wanting to be Billy Bragg. Yeah, right. Um, it's a bit of British stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents spent a lot of time in England before I was born. Um but yeah, I mean, mum used to tell the story of me as a three-year-old um, standing in the kitchen when she was cooking, playing air guitar to the to the radio, and I used to plug my amp in, which was the fridge, which which <laughs> you uh, went through the whole rigmarole as as like yeah as as oh, a yeah. three-year-old. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna. This is the thing, you know, um, which is you know quite telling, I guess, ending up as a bass player. And I, I, I had my first guitar, you know, I demanded my first guitar at three, apparently, and about four I was still talking about it, so my parents kind of gave in. And, and had you seen bands play at this point, or was it just I, I, TV and just... I don't know, I must have, you know. Um, my, my parents were those kind of parents that, you know, taking me to festivals and folk yeah, festivals cool. and stuff would have, been, would have been a part of it. And just, for me, it was always just being a part of what was going on around me and it still is to today like just um getting in and part getting your the, hands dirty fabric. yeah you know um and yeah so as a little kid it was you know music was around and and my parents got divorced when i was about eight or nine and i i guilt tripped my dad i remember dragging him into um, manny's i think it was manny's revolver before it was whatever it is now but on chapel street and uh, and pulling this P bass copy, purple P bass copy off a wall, um, and and playing a couple of things and basically guilt tripping him into uh, buying it for me, and that was that was the end of it. I've been playing bass ever since. I think that the longest I've been without a bass in my hand since I was nine or whatever. 
And did you like? Weeks. Were you wanting a guitar and you accidentally got a bass? No, 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 it wasn't. I, I that, that that would be a great story for how you started playing baseball. I thought it was a guitar. I thought it was a guitar. It looked like a guitar. Um, no, I heard I heard Curtis Mayfield. I heard um, Superfly, the soundtrack to Superfly. One of my older cousins was playing it. I was like, "What's that? That bit? You know that?" And uh, he's like, oh, "That's the electric bass," and that was it. Right, that was you know. I mean, you living in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, we were here in here in Melbourne and uh, guilted dad into it. And I don't know whether it was because physically playing the guitar, you know, the physical action, the mechanics of it's similar or whatever, but it just it was you know quite comfortable and felt like home straight away. Felt like home straight away, and and you know it wasn't until I was in high school that playing was this thing, you know, that the cool kids did and. Which which had something to do with me, I suppose, um, swinging away at it. But yeah, I've been playing ever since. A lot of punk, yeah, a, lot right. of, a lot of fuzz pedals, and a lot of Picks. lot of that stuff. Never got into the pick. Never, and I still struggle with it today. Like I, I you know, quite often in a session somewhere, someone's like, "Oh, can you do that?" But you play it with a pick, and um, you know, I'll get through a tune, but to do a gig with a pick, yeah, my hand would cramp up. I reckon. Yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> uh, with with King Wolf, one of the bands I play with, I, I I tend to play chords and stuff, and and I was tearing up my hands, smashing the right, smashing yeah. the bass. So the boys bought me some bass picks and went, "Can you stop bleeding on the stage, please?" <laughs> um, so yeah, but not often. Um, so yeah, you know, the punk thing, and a mate of mine from England. Mark Brennan, who's still over there playing a monster, he was a you know absolute virtuoso of a blues jazz guy at like fifteen. He was just world class, and uh, we met in an orchestra pit uh, playing the school production of Bye Bye Birdie or something. We were both in this pit playing the tunes, and we got we hit it off, and and uh, he dragged me along to a Lloyd Spiegel show uh, when I was. 16 or okay. 17 or something and and that was the, the show at the Continental and it's still like I still remember it quite vividly it's one of the only musical experiences that I've ever had that, that's quite visceral for me and what's the Continental now? is it still there? no it's not there um, hasn't been there for a long time um, but it was the room yeah you know the jazz blues sit down yeah. vibe it was the room for that and um, yeah Great show. It's actually a recording. That show was recorded. Oh, cool. Unbeknownst to the band and, and released as an album. So it's... A bit or... Well, no, it was no, actually... It was... Lloyd got a hold of it and released it. But, and it was... Um, yeah, so it's quite nice to be able to put that record on and go, that's that's the turning point. You know, him, yeah. him playing him playing Lonely. And, and yeah, it was this like, wow. Do you, know, do you know who the bass player was at the time? Uh, well, Dave... Um, was his bass player but Dave for some reason and I don't know why but Dave didn't do that show um, it was an older cat who I I don't know but um, yeah that was a big turning point for me the blues and, and just feeling something you know it was the first time that it wasn't about being obnoxious it was the first time about you know telling a story mm. um, and growing up with that folk stuff I guess there's that crossover to telling a story yeah yeah um, yeah so the blues um, which I, I still 
you know, I play blues gigs four nights a week now. Yeah. So how, how long have you been playing for? <sighs> you know, I, I, <laughs> how long is a bit of a string? I don't know. I mean, I nine, I say, when I got <clears> my first, <throat> when I got my first P-Bass copy. Yeah. Um, and I'm 34. So you sure? Yeah, you know, I'm doing the math on that too. Um, yeah, I'm I'm 34. So you do the math, and um, and a number will come up. A number will come up. 20 too long. Over 20 years. Too long to not yeah. be able to pay the rent. <laughs> <laughs> so through high school, you're just playing like high school bands, like punk bands, and punk stuff bands like that. and stuff. And because I don't imagine there would have been anybody else really playing the, the blues. No, no. Although and, it it is, it is always a good you know common ground for jamming and stuff and it I is. try and introduce it to students you know as, as a framework for just for just playing you know you don't yeah. necessarily need to know the song no. you just need to know four or five basic things and you can, you can kind of get through it yeah and I mean that that moment that was a really big one for me I used to go to a jam in um, in Williamstown where I grew up and uh, that was that you know someone taught me the blues and that was my my intro to jamming with people and I think at first I was a little disheartened by how straightforward that was or how simple that was to do. <laughs> but very quickly you kind of work out that you can play a note a hundred different ways. Mm. And so it becomes less about, well, for me personally, my musical journey and my musical explorations got a lot less to do with playing like Jarko or playing like Victor Wooten and, and not that I don't love what they've done and what they do and you know mind blowing mind blowing stuff but for me it, it did come back to you know how deep in a pocket you can get and, and how, how many ways I can play that G chord mm. or that G note um, when you got to when you reach your 48th turnaround you know yeah you're looking for something <laughs> new you know and you know understanding chords and understanding mm chord substitutions and understanding what's in a chord you know is super super important for a bass player you know totally. there's, there's no yeah. you know um you know arpeggiating Fuck. like that whole arpeggiating the major scale is yeah. is the most important part of all of it i think and knowing that oh i'm playing a two chord well i've got what notes have I got? What choices have I got? When someone calls a, a an E seven sharp nine, yeah, you got to know that there's there's a D and a G in that chord. Yeah, you know. So even though you're only playing the E, and you're sitting in that pocket, you've yeah. got to you got to know. Yeah. Um. So it's it's that. Did you kind of did you kind of absorb the stuff on the gig, or was it like somebody a mentor who? Was well, I, I, I absorbed a lot on the gig, you know, the pentatonic scale and the major scale and the minor scale and, and yeah. on those things that you need to, uh, to get by. <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> I guess um, uh, on, on the gig you were learning it. Yeah, you know, like picking up the ma all of, the, all of the, the building blocks. Yeah. And at some point, um, a cousin of mine got into VCA and, and he went off and studied and for a little while. And, and at that point, you know, I was touring and playing and, and not making a living, but I was, I was busy. What um, age is this? Playing, oh, 20. Okay. And, 
and I had this this notion that you know I needed to study. So I gave that a crack for a little while. Uh, I enrolled and, and went to um, the Gordon Institute down in Geelong when it was still a straight jazz course, mm. which has changed apparently. It's now more a contemporary, or it was a contemporary, now it's actually completely stopped. Um, but yeah, I had a really good mentor down there and, and I always had a really hard time when people would throw letters at me and throw charts in front of me and stuff. And I always really, really struggled. And the first thing that um, Rob Gaydor is his name, he's still out that way playing, monster. Okay. Absolute monster jazz cat. And he, he broke it all down and showed me the number system. Okay. Which was revolutionary for me and it opened so many doors mm. understanding that it wasn't about having to have all of the information all the time. That you could literally go, well, there's seven notes that are important. And of those seven notes, there's sort of five that are important. Mm. Um, and really look at it and work backwards from there was a real turning point for me. It's almost like a zip folder of harmony. Mm. Zip, you know? Totally. Whereas like you go, you know, you know that your two chord contains X, Y, Z. You know, so it's just every two chord everywhere. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Unless it's a dominant seven chord, two chords, you know. That, that. But yeah, yeah but that's, so, that's so you were down there for uh, yeah. <laughs> you were down there for how long? Um, not long enough. About six months. Um, I should. It was a two-year course or something, and I just. You know, it was really hard to go and sit in a classroom for me and be surrounded by, not that there was a massive age gap, but there would have been a couple of year age gap between me and the average, like average kid. And, yeah, you know. And sit there and have them, you know, kind of teaching me these things. And some of them I, th I found super relevant and I still use today. Yeah. Still use every time I pick the instrument up. Yeah. But a lot of it, you know, like I wasn't really into jazz yeah. personally. And, and you know, when you're getting phone calls going, hey man, we're in Sydney doing this gig. What are you doing? Oh, I'm doing homework. I'm, you know, I'm writing charts or, you know, and it didn't take too long for me to just go, well, this is not really where I want to be. Yeah. Um, so I, I took, I took the number system and, and I, I took uh, extensions and, and, um, a little bit of chord theory away from that time mm. and added it to the the pot of things that I already had going on and that was the extent I mean I still occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll go and hang out with Steve Hadley and, and you know geek out and learn as much as I can from Hadley and, and Chris Becker and you know sit down with those guys and and work on something that I'm not quite understanding or something that yeah. I'm struggling with as a player or something that I'm playing that makes sense to me but I don't understand why it makes sense to me okay, you know it yeah. sounds right and it feels good which makes it completely right regardless in my exactly. opinion but you know it doesn't take long before you're asking yourself the questions why yeah um, and having a, a guy around or a guru that you can mm. kind of call and go hey this is happening what's the go um, and I like to say it's kind of like learning theory reading or, or how many like it's just a shortcut it doesn't change it well it shouldn't really fundamentally change your goal as a player mm. but it's just a shortcut to getting to, to play what you want it, yeah how, how, what you want to play on the instrument you yeah, know yeah yeah like instead of that trial and error going is it this note no is it this note no would that work if you can go okay it's in this key this is the changes you know exactly your parameters mm. and you can get there a lot quicker yeah definitely and um 
I think it's important to sort of keep a keep a handle on that, you know, yeah. through all all of my playing and you know the gigs that you turn up to. Well, I found personally, you know, the gigs you turn up to, maybe a little underprepared, playing with guys that are scary, scary players, mm. or you know, <clears throat> which happens a lot in Melbourne. It does, it does, um, and you, you turn up and you're there and. Because you're maybe not super confident. I mean, you know the chords and you've got your ear on, so you're all right. But the gigs that you sit in that pocket, find that bass drum and sit on that bass drum. Yeah. They're the ones you get the calls back from. Mm. They're the ones that are like, hey, we're off to Sydney next month. Do you want to come and do this show? Or, yeah. um, oh, we've got a day recording. Can you come in and do that thing? Um, those, those nights that you, there was a little bit of fear and, and you were actually playing right on the edge of mm. that fear is, is the days that or the, those shows that you get the call back for and do you find there's you know the same kind of work as there was when you were in the 20s well 10 years ago it's you know the industry's changing um, on every level and everyone's trying to adapt yes there's still gigs out there you can still gig in Melbourne mm four, five, six, seven nights a week, you can. But the pivot point on that is you can only ever make 100, 150 bucks a night. So yeah, you can gig seven nights a week, but can you live on $700 a week? You know, and you can if you want to live like a student. Yeah. But if you want to live like a grown up, <clears throat> I don't know that you, you know. If you want to buy gear. If you want to, if you want to own eight bases. <laughs> If you want seven P's, yeah. you, you need a job. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And well, P's, the P. Yeah. This is this is my, the one. Does um, it have an, any kind of name? Well, we're running with B. Um, for bass? For, well, for bass. <laughs> for bass, for beautiful, yeah. for um, bespoke, which is the company that, built it for me okay um and it it is everything that i've ever wanted in a in an instrument i mean and we were discussing this before but it's like you go on this this search for tone you know and you do you you start where you start which is generally a, a p or a jazz bass or a in that kind of either side of the fence and and i went on a I went on a journey, you know. A Lord of the Rings quest. Yeah, it was. That's what it was like. <laughs> One base you know? to rule them all. Definitely, you know. And and ten years, fifteen years later, or whatever it was, here I am sitting playing a P bass, and and it's it it voices the way I want it. It feels like an extension of me, which is all these things that people say when they're trying to sell you something, I guess. But mm -hmm. I um, yeah, through Warwick's and and different high-end court stuff in the in the in the nineties when they were. In the, 2000s and stuff when they were really mm -hmm. making some nice stuff with Bartolini pickups in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ibanez, <clears throat> Music Man, um, you know, a couple of jazzes, a couple of, I had, I had a um, Jaco custom shop for a little while, which is, you know, an incredible instrument. Fretless? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you've gone down the fretless? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm quite comfortable on a fretless, which is, um, it's a different monster. Yeah. Um, but, and it's that thing, like I've played short scale basses for a time and double bass and fretless and, and actives and passives. And I think that it's all this 
amazing little colour palette of, of bottom end. For sure. You know, and, and I think that... I mean, we've probably all been to a gig and saw a bass player playing something that you wouldn't even look, think you know think twice about buying, mm. but they sound great and they kill it on the gig. So within reason, anybody can make anything yeah. work and sound oh, good. Totally. Know, but what speaks to you? Yeah, yeah. And what's what's the easiest? I sort of, I talk about it a lot being like the quickest path or the shortest path between my fingers and the speakers, mm. you know, and, and whatever gets the sound that you're, fingers are asking for out of the speaker is is the right the right path yeah um but yeah so i i had a beautiful old p bass um which my my parents bought me for my 21st it was a it's a 78 it's in immaculate condition i got the nice. case and the owner's manual and yeah. wow. all the bits and pieces for it it's, <clears throat> it's an incredible incredible bit of wood um but it's heavy mm. and and i i gigged with it Solidly, it was my main thing for, I don't know, maybe five years. And I started getting neck pain and back pain and you know, all those things that you get when you sling a 15 kilo bit of wood around your neck for a couple of hours a day. And I, I took it, I, I heard about Dave Paul um, at um, Bespoke Guitars and Orpheus Pickups. It's the same same okay. guy. And... and uh, I called him up and, and went down there and, and spoke to him and, and took in my, my 78 and sort of went, this is, this is the one, like this is the thing, but it's too heavy. Yeah. Um, and he went, cool, well, I'll make you one. And, uh, and had you checked out his stuff before me or was it like a... Not, not his, not his bases, um, but he'd done some setup work for me that's mm -hmm. my telephone he'd done some setup work for me people love me um he'd done some setup work and i think he'd actually he'd made some pickups for my jazz bass and that's where i you know we we built a rapport and a vocabulary um uh, about tone mm -hmm. you know and 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 understanding getting to un getting getting me to understand what he meant when he was using certain words, yep. you know, and understanding what a tone cap really does mm. and understanding how it does what it does and understanding the different gauges wire and the different strengths of the magnets and understanding those things. So when he built me those pickups, it was a real, for me, quite a frustrating time of trying to learn the language or our language that we could communicate in. And, and after that, I was like, cool, we'll build this base. And he built this and backwards and forwards a lot, you know, about nut, you know, the nut itself, what, what you make the nut out of. And there's like five or six choices. What is it? Well, so this is just bone. This is, um, it is bone. It is bone. Yeah. A bit of cow bone, I think. Um, but you know, I mean, antler, stainless brass, mm. um, plastic composite fiber, and, and, you know, again, there's no right or wrong. They're just different choices. Yep. Um, and then you go down to the... the you, didn't, you didn't want to go for the Warwick adjuster nut? <laughs> I, I got a theory about um, the whole... No, really? No, you got a theory about it? I got a theory about that. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, they, they sell those as like, you get to adjust it. And it's the same as the bridges. You can yep. adjust it to... It's just so they can make one and put it on all of them. Yeah. Like... You don't you, need to cut you, them differently. Or no, like you don't have to. It's just one now. Which is a good idea. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I get it from their their yeah. end, you know, and and 
but it's kind of I don't know some part of me feels like it's underhanded because same as a fender right like they're all plastic Mm. now when you create a vibration and you want to continue that vibration plastic is like your enemy Mm. Um, it absorbs vibration so you don't want it and and but anybody that knows what they're doing is going to want to whip that plastic nut out and put something else in it anyway so you're never going to be able to cut the right nut for every player so you put plastic in and someone that knows what someone that likes something else will go ahead and change it Whereas Warwick's gone with the, we've designed this for you, mm. when in actual fact. And every time I changed the string, it would, I was like, it moves. did it go left or did it go right? <laughs> you could, oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same as, you know, the same as your string spacing, you know? I mean, I understand you, you can move it, open it up and shrink it down. And, yeah. But your neck's the same size. Yeah. So you kind of just want to have your string spaced across your neck evenly, you know? I don't know. The whole thing's a little bit over-engineered maybe for my mind um but yeah so bone bone nut brass saddles the um the bridge is made in melbourne um by alan pasco um amazing i've actually replaced all the badass bridges i had on all of my all of my bases with alan's that's a lot of yeah that's a few bridges that's a few bridge i built a few bridges um <laughs> and and the pickup dave dave hand wines um, all his own pickups. Mm. Um, so being able to, you know, it's one thing to get online and go, well, I like the way that bass player sounds. I want his pickup. But there's a dozen other things that are going to change that. Or, yeah, for sure. Or I, you jump online and go, oh, well, the Damasio, yeah, that's what I want. But when you put it in your bass and you plug in your board and you plug in your amp, there's no way that they can tell you what it's going to sound like. So no. to be able to deal with a a, uh, a luthier or a, a guy that's making your pickup for you take it away to a gig play a dozen gigs on it you can then come back and go it's great but can we you know it's not it's, hot enough yeah, for it's the, the only way to know is on, is on the gig and also in the same bass mm. as well because yeah. like I find it weird when somebody goes oh, I really like the sound of your pickups I'm like I have no idea what my pickups sound like because uh, well, I've you? never compared You've never sat there and swapped it out and gone and recorded and listened back to it going, oh yeah, that one's like, like, you can't say, like, I don't think you can go and say, I like the sound of that pickup. No, no, I don't think you, well, and the thing is as well, when you look at an instrument holistically, you can change the pickup, but if your brass, you know, if if your bridge and your nut are the same, you're only changing one part of three or four things that fundamentally fundamentally affect affect the whole picture, you know, so... Uh, not, I'm not saying all pickups are the same because they're not, but um, having someone that you can go back to and, yeah. and tweak. I think he he had three runs. He'd hate me to tell anyone that, but I think he had three runs at this before I was happy. And well, it's more your fault than his. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm broken, and, and he put up with me. Um, and having having the two tone caps, and that's something else that is just so fundamental, especially for a P player. Mm. Um, because there's very few bells and whistles between the output and the pickup. So understanding what those bells and whistles actually do. Um, and, you know, like I've got two tone caps in here and essentially it's like pre-CBS, post-CBS or uh, half a meg and a full meg tone cap. Four meg? Full meg. Full meg, yeah. One and one and half or one, yeah. Um, and they, they, you know, people tell you you can't hear the difference. You, I can, you can. 
yeah. we can. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a difference. Yeah. Um, That's such a great idea, having two in the one thing. Yeah, I does, mean... Does it exist? It do, well, Gibson Gibson do those, those five-way switches. Mm. Um, and in some of those... But that's just a like a five switch. There's no variance within the switch. Or well, is no, that... in the well, the they that switch runs a block of resin that's got different bits and wire and stuff okay. in it, which essentially is that, but um, a little different. But yeah, so I mean, the, the idea is not not new. Mm. Um, it's a little different to put it in a P base, mm. um, but it just helps me get um, a little bit more spank out of the out of the guitar when I want it. Which means I don't have to take two bases or you know uh, to a gig, or you can turn up and not know mm-hmm. what you're walking into and still have a little. So bit you of, would use the the one meg for well bluesy reggae that end of that end of town. Yeah, and then if I want to dig in or I want to spank or I want to cut through, you go to the half and it um, just gives you that that nose that you kind of don't normally get on a P. Yeah, right. And it is a subtle thing. Um, and the bigger, obviously the bigger system you plug a subtle thing into, like, you know, Blues Fest or, a yeah. huge, you know, you plug a little different thing in at this end and at the other end it's quite Magnified. a difference. Yeah, right. Um, and there's a lot of effects and a lot of pedals that you kind of, oh, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't do mm. anything. A lot of those enhancer pedals and um, sonic maximizers and stuff, you plug them into your amp and it's like, well, it doesn't make a difference plug them into a PA Mm -hmm. and there's like a massive difference Um, so it's one of those little things but yeah this thing it plays great I love it Dave puts up with me he's um, and tuners well these are they're they're reverse they are reverse they are reverse Ah, of course they are (laughs) why wouldn't you do that yeah Um, and rather than being I think Fender's 12 to 1 these are 16 to 1 so a little more bit more accurate yeah right it's a little bit more I mean it's yeah, arguable how much different look like they're quite tall or am I just imagining well they're just that? the vintage reverse that's just the way the height of them yeah and so this is actually like to the millimetre an exact replica of your 78 it's pretty close did you change the body no it's size it's, it's no it's it's pretty much to put them next to each other this is actually in worse nick the paint job's in worse <laughs> nick on this because it, it um, we had it painted with super light Nitro. Um, because? I believe um, it just... it. So Fender paints with quite thick paint. Yeah. Um, and like most massive companies, decisions are made um, based on profit, just out of a path of the course. And obviously, well, not obviously, but they put quite a thick layer of um, undercoat which is easier to sand than the wood. And then they paint on top of the undercoat. So essentially they're saving time right. sanding the instrument back. Okay. Um, so this this was done with a really thin coat of nitro and, and obviously putting that much paint on something, that much undercoat, that much paint, it's kind of like wrapping it in plastic, um, which, you know, you choose the wood of your instrument, it's nice to be able to hear it. And this is, Older? This is older. All of my bases, I didn't know this, but all my bases are older. Yeah. Uh, something that Dave picked up at some point is, you know, and I didn't know that. I've not bought them because of that. But you've been drawn to. But the sound of the instrument and the way that it plays, it's, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's a, uh, yeah. an accident. Yeah, right. That they're all the same. Mm. Um, 
and that's another thing something well the woods woods are wood a lot of guys will tell you, you know? well, especially in like maybe the acoustic folk world mm. you know I've had that before it was just well it's just the sound of the, your strings and the pickup isn't yeah, it the wooden effects and like nah, uh, no yeah. I definitely I definitely think wood mm. affects the sound yeah yeah and I mean and I think that's one of the things that for me separates a lot of great luthiers at the minute is their knowledge of wood and which woods to combine and how to treat it and how to store it like I mean my F bass is essentially a five string jazz it's mm. not a new concept right yeah. I mean and it's it's just pretty basic but those guys over there as, as you probably will know they really know about wood and I think that's one of the things that, that elevates it above mm. I mean if there's boutique base builders everywhere yeah uh, you know you can order from Croatia or yeah. you know Uzbekistan there's somebody out there making a five string jazz that yeah. looks amazing but unless they have that 20 year knowledge of woods mm. I think that's for me the difference between like your five thousand dollar base and your you know yeah and I mean I I think the second you break a thousand dollars you should be playing a pretty solid instrument yeah you know, and then you're talking about those little one percenters that make up the difference between a one thousand dollar instrument and a five thousand dollar instrument. Yeah. And the difference between a five thousand dollar instrument and a ten thousand dollar instrument is even more finite. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's even more bespoke almost. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, and it was what you know what really, I I was dead against. I was such a Fender guy. This is pretty embarrassing. I was dead against the idea of not playing a Fender. And I was happy to play Mexican Fenders and I was happy to play whatever, like a Fender. And uh, I was in Nashville and I bumped into uh, Bones Hillman. And uh, I was just, I was telling him about this amazing luthier that had just built, uh, just put pickups in my jazz bass and how, how amazing my jazz bass sounded now. And he kind of went, well, it's a Fender, man. You, you got you got ripped off <laughs> and I was gutted I was absolutely gutted and I was like what do you mean you know and he was like well for whatever the retail is on that instrument there's a guy that will build you from the ground up for the same dollar a better instrument and I was I, I took me about six like, months to yeah I was like don't stab the bass player from midnight oil don't but you know like it was there was this five point pizza yeah anyway um but and and that was a that was a big turning one for me yeah. as well it's like oh right okay actually understanding the bits and mm. the sum of the whole some of the whole for sure is is super important you know and the strings and I'm actually really gutted about strings I um these Dadarios and I, I bought a stack of Dadarios just recently because you can buy them in bulk and um, they're all right. You can, you can afford to change them, essentially. Yeah. Um, but I, I fell in love with um, Federa strings, which they've just stopped importing um, last year or the year before or whatever yeah. it was. So I couldn't get them anymore. And the reason I really, really dug them is they had a, a light gauge. So these are, they were, and these are a 40 to a hundred. Okay. Um, and I, I just find that, you know, I don't know. It just, it speaks to me a little bit better. I get a little bit more dig out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I think uh, going with a P bass, which has got that big round muscle vibe, 
and putting light gauge strings on it so you can dig in and get a little spank kind of helps you find that middle ground yep. um, again and give me a little bit more versatility. And if you want more bottom end, you know, you just go. There's a, there's a knob on your amp for there that. Is. You there is. There's a knob for everything these yeah, days. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's this thing. Yeah. And uh, Quite a journey. Yeah, it is. Is it, it is. over? No. Well, yes. Um, in regard to bass, I don't, I, at this point I don't need anything else. I don't, I'm not on the hunt for, I mean, I just, just recently saw Booker T and, and his bass player's got a five string, which kind of reignited that flame for me about maybe looking at a five. Um, but I feel like I'm going over to the dark side. So I, oh. I, I, I don't know if I can, uh, don't know if I can go there, but we'll, you know, we'll see. I, I don't need another instrument. This, this speaks, um, sure. For me, better than anything else I've ever played mm. um, and and I I can't imagine needing anything else I mean I do have a jazz bass I do have a, a, a telly bass I do have a vintage P and another P and but you you grab but this, this is it this is this is the one that gigs. lives in the gig bag this yeah. is the one that you know <clears throat> unless I've got a country gig um, or unless I know I'm going out with an envelope filter to play funk mm. this is this is it this is and, and this would do that too but exactly, yeah you know um i can yeah playing country on a p is kind of where it's at but I, you know having the tally and being able to go to that extreme sure is kind of nice um so yeah this this does it for me and and you know like i was saying before we there, i remember doing a recording once and there was like three or four preamps in the chain in the chain between me and the guy recording it, and I was just, I don't know, I don't even know why it was then, but I was like, what am I doing? What do I need four yeah. EQ sections mm -hmm. for? You know, and you know, if it works for you, it works for you, that's great. But, you know, dumbing it down and pulling that stuff out and, and, and having a, a clean, just solid bottom end, actually getting the instrument to give you that, that tone you're looking for. Mm before you've plugged anything else in is kind of the best place to start. For sure. Yeah, get it, get the source right. You know. And, and then anything else should be enhancing that. Yeah, you know, or changing that because of a re, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Um, but yeah, and that's something that I, um, you know, I've learnt to do. And uh, I, I, yeah, I really dig it. Yeah, it's killer. Sounds great. Yeah, it's, um, it's the one. And rig-wise, you're, you're running the Mark Bass? Mark Bass, yeah. I, um, I got on Mark Bass pretty early. I'm, I'm on my third Mark Bass head now, and um, I've dug this stuff for a long yeah. time. And, and it's I've never had any major problems with it. Lightweight, powerful, punchy, all the things that um, you want it to. And it's funny you put a you know Mark Bass head next to a bunch of digital other digital heads, and I think it sounds. A little nicer for my ear it, it does all the things I want it to um, but just recently I've fallen in love with a 100 watt baseman uh, and the matching 15 that goes with it of course it has the matching 15 of course uh, you're gonna yeah. you know uh, <laughs> and and it's not until you go back and plug into a valve amp mm. that you go yeah there really is like we are playing with artificial sweetener you know yep but it does the job and Totally. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like when you're doing 
seven gigs a week for 150 bucks. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to bring? You yeah. know, that thing or the thing that just does the job well. Yeah. You know, it's maybe not tone Nirvana every night, mm. but like we've also talked about before, you're so often at the mercy of the room, mm. you know, that you bring someone like that and that's the worst is when you go, I've got my record. When I had my 750, I was like, yes, this is it. 750, Epiphany, 310, yeah. take it to the gig. And it's like, this, what? Why does this not sound good? Mm. You know, it's just like, I just got sick of, of that yeah. more often than not. It's just like the differences between the Mark Bass head and the 750 are obvious in a controlled environment. But once you get out onto the stage and, and in those rooms that are different week in, week out, yeah, the, the cons outweigh the pros yeah, for definitely. me in terms of gig life. Definitely. If I had a regular thing or I was only gigging here and there and I knew it was going to be X, then I would go, okay, I'll have that. But, you know, the load in, the easy use. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard oh. to turn down. Yeah, no, it is, and that's just modern playing, I guess. Yeah, you know, not having someone to carry a W bin up a flight of stairs for you <laughs> really changes your need for that W bin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, Mark, um, I've got a a bit of a bit of a thing for electroharmonics pedals. Yeah. Um, so you got the, the worst octave ever made on there? Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny that we have uh, very, very different universe opinions there because I think this is possibly the nicest octave pedal. Um, it does, yeah. It's, it sounds pretty good. I think maybe mine was Goost. Like you say, <laughs> The, the electroharmonics quality control isn't always up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. And it, <laughs> it, I mean, in regard to octaves, there's, there's kind of two schools. You've got your analog roundness, which I feel I get out of that. <coughs> and you've got your synth. Yep. Um, synth vibe, which is, again, totally cool. And it's an octave and it does all those things. But it just sounds like a synth to me. And, and that doesn't. Sound True. Like just an octave. Well, I mean, my first octave pedal was the EBS Octobase, yeah. which I feel is more along yeah. that kind of analogy. Yeah, thing. definitely, definitely. But it really comes into its own with um, the X Blender, which um, which is which is basically an effects loop with its own EQ, so you can separate your clean bass sound at, and a blend and a blend. With the effect or whatever you've got plugged into the the um Thing. the loop is the word i'm looking for um now that on its own i find a little bit overwhelming so that never goes anywhere without this the um, octava yeah even so with the do blend you run mode. it wet fully wet and get the blend from the well i mean it's not full but yeah. you're, you're heading that way like much more than you ever would if if you didn't have that loop control, yeah, because you wouldn't want that full crappy octave sound in your, yeah. in your <laughs> crappy, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and I mean, I I got on that trip with the the bigger one, the seventies one that they did. Um, I was on a a hip hop gig, and and the dude that did the gig before me was using one of those, and it just thumped. Yeah, it really like, and it was the you know, I was like, wow, that's that's an octave sound. Um, and I've got one of those, but this is just, 
I, I minimized everything. I used to have a huge board that had its own power supply and its own mic stand. And it's, it, it was like huge, right? And, uh, and, and a little while ago I went, right, I'm gonna buy a pedal train nano board. And anything that doesn't fit on the board isn't allowed to leave the house. And so I now, that's, that's the, side of my, the size of my board, regardless of the gig I'm doing. I've got umpteen million pedals and I'm allowed to swap things out, but I'm not allowed to take anything that outside of my tuner, which doesn't count. It goes, you put that on your amp, you don't need that on the floor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not allowed to take anything else, um, which keeps me honest. Yeah. It's almost um, like, you know, the whole, the stripping away the fat in terms of gear is, parallels in terms of playing mm. musical you know stripping away the fat as well you kind of been on that journey as well where you go actually i'm just going to do this one yeah. note instead of four or yeah, yeah I, I think or have you always kind of been more just in that grounded no i mean you know you always you go through that you know i mean everyone had a jaco phase mm. you know um everyone wants to get on stage and have all the lights shine on them and, and play you know, come on, come over with a 10-piece band behind them. Well, you say that until it actually happens. And then you, you don't want go, I'm a bass player, I shouldn't be, don't yeah. look at me. Yeah. You know, um, and, that, and I think that's the kind of, the dichotomy a lot of the time is that bass players were generally background guys, Yeah. you know? Yeah. But we practice stuff that is foreground chops. Well, it's all, it's all music. Like we've all got yeah. the same notes. Yeah. And, and all the things that can be done with notes can be done on any instrument that creates notes. So as much as I'd, I'd rather sit on a whole note mm. through a chord change, you need to be able to understand that there are all of these other notes, yeah. all of those horn parts and all yeah. of those, you know. Um, well, I, mean, so, I mean, some guys can totally make it work. Like, I mean, Jamerson, right? Oh. Or Willie Beaks. Yeah. Or Rocco. Like, if you, if you did that many notes on a gig... You'd be fired. You right? wouldn't get through the gig. But when you hear them, it's, I don't even think that there's a lot of notes. I just think... Mm. It's a great baseball subtlety, and, yeah. and and I, yeah, it's it's the constant struggle, <laughs> and and I mean I find myself maybe too honest, but you you find yourself at a gig, and there's a player who you you really respect, and there's that seesaw going on in your head, mm-hmm. where you're going, well I could have put these notes in there. And the next time it comes around, you do put those notes in there because you, you want to make sure that everyone knows that you can put those notes in there. Yep. Which is really self-defeating because it was better without those notes in there. Um, <laughs> and I, I try and err on that side of it personally, you know, and, and pocket playing. And, and um, just recently, I was, I was lucky enough to, to be at Blues Fest this year and... and um, uh, Mavis Staples Band, Jeff uh, Jeff Terms is her bass player and has been for 10 years or whatever. And that dude mm-hmm. is just pocket. Yeah, right. You know, like, when I, just, yeah, I'm just standing there and watching him do his thing and you're like, he hasn't got a care in the world. Mm. He is just in on that bass drum and it just effortlessly oozes out of the guy. Um, 
and he's not, you know, he's just sitting on a, yeah, you know, a one four. That's a great know, bass player. Sitting on the groove, mm-hmm. and and it was, you know, in comparison to everything else there, I, I didn't really notice any other players. Yeah, you know, in the way that I noticed him, and and yeah, man, massive, massive pocket playing, and that's for me. Yeah, what um, I hope people get from my playing. And, oh, for and sure. Yeah, I hope that you know. Well, I mean, I think your your calendar reflects that, you know. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's great. It's it's great to be able to play, and it's great to get that phone call when when you know someone you don't know or someone someone that you you've heard about, or someone you've respected, or someone you know calls you up and goes, "Hey, we need someone to come and do that thing you do." Yeah, yeah. And the first time that happened for me, I was just like, "Wow, it's, people out there know what I do." you know I thought I was just sucking and not playing many notes <laughs> you know so it's it's um, yeah, yeah. yeah it's important to listen it's important to keep your ears open it's important to play the song first and foremost and as a support instrument yeah you know um, not playing sometimes actually making the choice yeah to stop playing which seems so you know like foreign to most players you just stop you know the horns stop when it's not time for the horns to play yeah you know yeah so what's wrong with the bass stopping when this you know give it yeah. that room yeah um what's kind of been your gig journey i guess i mean you know you said you started playing punk stuff but i mean i, I you came to my radar as like the kind of the, the blues you know on the blues scene around here but what what else do you do? What's your? I mean, if you could do anything, I it's it's funny. I I mean, I love I love what I do. I, I genuinely <clears throat> live for sitting in a pocket with a drummer, yeah, laying out blues tunes or you know country tunes or you know. It took me a long time to find the pocket in country. I never mm-hmm. quite got that, um, but I approach. Uh, country or Americana the same way I, I approach reggae nearly you know it's the same kind of note length note length and back and really not not well, lazy you know lazy playing you get away with falling off the one you get yeah. away with sort of stumbling into stuff um, as long as it's a choice and you're not actually sure. don't know what you're doing and just stumbling into stuff <laughs> um but yeah, you know, I mean, the punk stuff and, and, you know, I did my first kind of festival stuff, Apollo Bay and, and those kind of festivals in punk bands and <clears throat> and then uh, Americana country blues stuff for a little while and, um, you know, I played with Dan Waters um, on that record um, a little while back, which was great. That won a bunch of awards, that Americana record and... But the blues, ever since I saw that show of Lloyd's, the blues has always been there and has yeah. always been a really, really solid part of my playing. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes to a detriment, you know, like when a player needs a bass player to play songs mm-hmm. rather than blues, you know, 12 bars and stuff. I don't know that I always get those phone calls. Um which is, it's okay, and you know, I don't mind, but that's in there too. There's no reason why I can't. Sure. You know, it's all, 
But you do, you kind of, you, you get the phone calls you get because you do the gigs you've been doing. And it just snowballs from there, mm. you know. Um, I genuinely appreciate that when a blues band comes from anywhere else in the country and they're looking for a rhythm section, you know, not all the time, but quite often I'll get a phone call, whether it's the second or third phone call, I don't know, but, you know, You're on um, the list I'm on the list. Yeah. And, and in a town like Melbourne, mm. um, where there are countless players and, and just a monster behind every instrument, you know, yeah. like this, you know, yeah, it's, it's nice to be on a list For somewhere, sure. Yeah, you know, um, but yeah, I don't know that I'd, I'd, you know, being, if someone came along one day and said, you can have any gear you would, you know, your heart desires and you can have any gig mm. your heart desires. I don't know that my world would change all that much. Mm. That's, you know, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty special place to be in. Yeah. I'm, I'm super lucky. Yeah. You know, and I, I take stock every day. I, I had a near death <laughs> sickness thing yeah uh late last year and, and it really made me question everything i'm doing you know and i, I was in a very interesting um position because i was sick on a cruise ship and they'd they'd isolated me i was in a little room um no window no tv no internet you know <laughs> uh for you know i was i was on the boat four days mm. um so i had a lot of time to really ponder so it was in that, and during that period, in that time that you. Yeah, I, I think you know, like, oh well, you know, I'm happy with my life. I've been happy for a little while, you know. But that's when I really boiled it down, and and you know, sitting in that room, just going, well, they're gonna say, because you know, I was sure I was gonna die, and and uh, they're gonna say, well, he died doing what he loved, you know. It's like, well, I'm playing on a cruise ship. I don't know that that's necessarily ticking all of those boxes, but you know. I got back to Melbourne and, and I play with people who I respect. I play with people who I'm genuinely friends with. Yeah. Um, I, I play with different people all the time. Um, and, you know, like, how much better can it get than that? You know, yeah. genuinely. I mean, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to not ever have to worry about the rent. Yeah, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if our wages went up every every year. Yeah, well, a little inflation since the seventies would have been nice. Would be nice, you yeah. know. I um, mean, geez, like Reggio. Oh, dude, don't even get me started. You know, um, <laughs> see, it's like every, every, everything else that we consume can justify putting the prices up, hmm. but when people consume music, the price has gone down. Yeah, you know, and it's. I mean, Melbourne's in a really interesting spot. It's a double edge. Melbourne's in a really... Melbourne's uh, in quite an interesting little spot because we have so many gigs. There's no demand. It's because there are... Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and we've got so many great players and it's an amazing breeding ground yeah. for monster musicians and monster players and monster bands. You know, and our standard... Mm is you know up there with the world in, oh, totally, yeah. in, in every field in every you know we yeah. really are kicking goals the problem with that is that you know i can i don't have to pay two dollars to get into this gig yeah because <laughs> i can go 100 meters down the road and get into that gig for free 
and buy a twelve dollar pint of beer. Oh, you know, people people that won't <laughs> shouldn't we shouldn't even let's let's go there. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, people that won't pay ten dollars to get in to see a show, but will buy a five piece band around a shots. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like don't buy me the shot. I'm driving home. <laughs> Give me the ten bucks. Yeah. Because I got to put petrol in the car. You yeah. know, like it and. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, but all, um, one of the things I, I talk about musicians and stuff is that, hey, if we don't support our own industry, how can we expect, you know, else? the civilians, you know, the, mm. the non-user public to support it? I mean, like, if we're not going out and checking out gigs and supporting yeah. each other and, and paying to go and see shows, then why would we, why do we think that anyone else would? Mm. And we are the music lovers at yeah. the end of the day. We play the music. You yeah, know? well, yeah. I mean, the... The real kicker for me is knowing that tickets to shows in Australia sell really well, statistically. Mm. We spend $4.5 billion a year, the Australian public, going out to see live entertainment. That's a pretty big number. Right? Yeah. But in Melbourne, <laughs> at a, you know, people will pay $70 to go and see an American rock band. Yeah. Not a problem. People will pay $200 to go and see Pink. Mm. Not a problem. Not a question. What were the tickets front row for the Rolling Stones? It was like $600 or something, more, yeah. I think. I mean, I could be making that up, but I think. But getting that same punter mm. to open his wallet and spend $10 is like an affront yeah. on his freedom yeah. to go into a menu. You know? And it's, I mean, whatever. You know, we sell good times and fun. Um, well, we're, we're in the market of selling beers. That's true. That's what once told me. Yeah, we are. And you're you're in um, that end of the business that you're booking. Yeah, extent? yeah. To some extent, I um, I don't know. I I, I fell into it. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, rhythm section management in Sydney. Um, Howler and Ryan are actually an amazing rhythm section themselves. Monster players. Yeah. Um, and they do blues and roots stuff, and, and I do blues and roots stuff here in Melbourne, and I kind of always have. And, you know, I run a couple of nights um, myself, you know, paying players to turn up and do the thing, which is great. Um, and we just kind of were on the same page, and they used to call me and say, oh, we've got a band coming to town. What should we do? Mm. Where should we play? And that just kind of evolved into, hey, do you want to do this for us? And yeah. so now I've got. I've got that, which is frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, dealing with musicians. Dealing with musicians, <laughs> dealing with venues. Has it changed how you are when somebody calls to book you? Or have you always been pretty much? It, what it has done is changed my perspective on how I expect to be treated. Um, and with communication and like I'll go and do a gig for you know nothing nothing 70 bucks whatever if if it's a show I want to do mm. and they've been up front about it you and know, the person at the front isn't making 500 bucks yeah <laughs> you know um, but it's it's one of those things that you know when you start booking shows and you start communicating with venues and you, you get into the habit of what questions to ask and what needs to be clear and what needs to be in writing and what needs to be yeah, done yeah but then when you do get that phone call from someone that goes, oh, it could be, you know, this and it could be that. It's like, well, I don't actually mind, 
But what I do need is the information. Yeah. And I'll, you know. Because you've been there so many times where you're told one thing and you get there and it's something different. Yeah. And there's nothing to back it up. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and I, I, you know, I don't mind. I'll, I'll come and do it. But I need to know and it needs to be firm, mm. you know, because we all budget our weeks on what we're getting paid. Yeah. You know, week to week. Yeah, pretty much. Month to month. Show, yeah. You know, and, and yeah. So no, it hasn't changed my perspective on all of it, but it's definitely changed the way in which I uh, handle myself and the way I deal with people. And what what advice would you give to other people who may be booking their own band or that kind of thing in terms of dealing with venues and what to what to expect and what um, what not to expect to get? Yeah. Well, I mean, like you say, we're in the business of selling beers. Yeah. Um, and helping the venue sell beers doesn't necessarily mean having the most spot-on musical show. Yeah. Um, it does mean having a great vibe, having some energy, having the room dance so they're thirsty, mm-hmm. you know, um, just flow on from that. And giving a venue every chance to succeed in making money. Yep. You know, being the easy people to deal with, being the guy that calls them back, yeah, being yeah. the guy that, oh yeah, I'll send you that, being the guy that actually sends that. Yeah. You know, because the difference between your band and the next band to a venue is... 12 hours? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like it's not... So so being that guy that does what he says when he says it, here's a video, here's a, the, the posters, here's the event we've put up on Facebook. Yeah without having the venue go, now you need to do the thing and you've got to have a thing and like, just do it. Hmm. You know the venue's going to ask for it. Yeah. Get on the front foot and be someone they don't have to worry about. Sure. And you'll get another one, you know? Be that person they've got to stress about, be that person they've got to chase, whether it's for the invoice or for Facebook or for, you you know, just the less you can make everyone around you stress, mm. the more chance you've got of... Uh, and if you, because obviously Facebook in terms of the gig industry is a relatively new medium. Yeah. Uh, do you place much emphasis on it? Because I know, you know, there's the worst thing you can do is go, well, I made a Facebook event and nobody turned up. Like, that's really not the core it shouldn't be the core of any kind of gig management or booking thing no it's not just a box to tick yeah and yeah you will you will get some people through it but yeah well i mean if you're getting 10 percent of the people that say yes they're coming to your event actually turn up yeah you're doing pretty well yeah so that's one in ten um so no it's not an effective strategy to make people turn up um having a show that people are talking about having whether whether you you know set yourself on fire or um set the bar on fire or i don't know whatever it is that you do as long as it's fire as long as it's fire fire is the key to a career in this industry um you you know people want to come and see that show yeah people want to come and feel a little bit scared Mm -hmm. you know a little bit excited um but yeah, Facebook, you know, and it's funny because venues are now being managed and booked by people that have come through music college or, you know, industry classes in the last five years. Yeah. And they're trained at school to demand a Facebook event. 
Mm. Now, it's always one of the first things that I get in an email. Yep. And it, it, I'm not saying that it's not worth doing it. I mean, it takes five minutes, yeah. essentially. So it's not hard to do. And if it's no. something that the venue's expecting, regardless of the fact that it's pointless, do it. Mm. Um, but, you know, I work in the blues and roots end of the spectrum. Now, the consumers of blues and roots don't have Facebook accounts. <laughs> yeah. They don't interact with Facebook the same way that you or I do. Absolutely, yeah. And so creating a Facebook event has absolutely no impact generally yeah. on pulling those people into a room. Having yeah. a really solid mailing list, which is outdated and antiquated, but it's really important mm. in the blues and roots industry and I'm sure it, and world and I'm sure that it can't hurt everyone else. No. Actually being able to send out a MailChimp going, this is what we did last month, this is what we've got coming totally. up next month, and here's well, some photos. Because Facebook you knows know. so cluttered yeah. that the chances of your event or whatever being noticed by the people you want it to be noticed is getting less and less and less. Yeah. Unless so you pay the, for it. Yeah, the mailing list is actually probably making a return. Mm. You know. um, and, you know, it's, it's always hard getting people into a pub. You know, six months of the year in Melbourne, it's wet and it's cold and it's dreary. Yeah. So, well, but you can't not gig for six months. Yeah. You know, and then there's the footy season. You can't, you don't book anything in line. You don't book anything in September. You just don't. Yeah. Because, you know, no one's coming because the footy's on, you know. Um, But, you know, you manage it. You work out ways of getting around it. You know, you can't not, uh, not gig. Yeah. You know. Sure, but it's yeah in terms of advice for someone who's doing it all is just try and do as much of it as you can in every direction because what works for me or what works for you or works for the next band mightn't work yeah um, for you and something else something else might and the end of the day when you're handing someone an invoice and expecting it to be paid Mm. regardless of whether it's a $200 invoice or a $2,000 invoice. You don't want them to be able to look you in the eye and go, well, you didn't do that thing. Whatever that thing is, yeah. you know, we should have got posters two weeks ago. Yeah. We should have got, there should have been a Facebook push. There should, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, because, you know. Do you feel that venue owners and promoters pull it away? That's dangerous. True. Uh, well, in, in my in, <laughs> in some of my experiences, it's been like I email a venue for a gig, and they go, "Sure, you can have this date," but then it's just like, but then I have to organise the two support acts, I have to organise the sound, I have to organise a door person, hmm. I have to do everything that I thought the, the booker, promoter, venue—not everything, but at least a, a large majority of the stuff I thought would be their job. Otherwise. Yeah. I don't want to give you a cut mm. of the thing, you know? Yeah, well, and I mean, it's... Every room's different. Mm. You know, there is there is some people out there that look at it from... You know, there are musicians out there that do exactly the same thing, but in opposite, you know? And, and it, this industry, as far as I've kind of worked out, is all about relationships, you know? Mm. And there are certain people I can call and go, hey, I want to do this. Yeah. And because of my track record with them personally, I might be able to flesh out a deal that's a little bit better or a little bit different to 
someone who they've never spoke to before. And sure. yeah, there are venues out there that make it really hard for everybody, and there are definitely bands out there that make it really hard for venues. True. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, you know, that like once bitten, twice shy. You know, like when a when a guy calls you and goes, "Hey, yeah, I've got." 600 mates and we're all coming and we want to get hammered and it's mm. going to be great and you put on extra bar staff and you put on extra security and yep. and this dude and four, his three housemates turn up you know um, so you you know yeah don't don't be the guy that gives makes it harder for, for all everybody the other, yeah. you know and it's that whole we live in an ecosystem yeah where you know the venues react the way they do because the bands have treated them the way they do and the the bands treat the venues the way they do because the venues have treated the way cycle. and you know and it's it's about busting out of that be the change you want to see well you know <laughs> work to pay your rent you know like it's yeah yeah it's not always fun yeah it's not always fair you know but it kind of it evens out over the you hope so you know i mean you've done a bunch of festival stages and stuff as well yeah what's some of the do's and don'ts in terms of that scene or what would you say especially for bass players here's something to look out for in terms of playing on the big stages or any any kind of little you know nuggets that you go when i'm playing a festival stage i always bring this or i'm always kind of looking for that yeah when i when you go out whether it's a festival or a tour or whatever and you're not sure what your backline's going to be having like i don't generally travel with a preamp yep. um, but i've got an old um, sans amp one of the early sans amp Pre's, and if I don't know what I'm going to get, you know, I take that and I plug straight into the effects return of whatever it is amplifier I'm given. Yeah. Um, because I know it. Sure. You know, you don't want to be the guy struggling with the buttons that you don't know what they do and turning the knobs and making. You know, you just don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Um, when you've got your four minutes own check. Yeah. You know, um, and even with a mark base like I'll take the mark base with me and just put it on top of that's it I mean the dif- there's a difference in size between the sand amp and a mark base not huge not, these not, days. yeah 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 it's not not yeah. a big step you know um, and it's it's funny quite often I'll you know obviously you get just about every stage I mean the industry standards are a fridge and a, an SVT you know and although they are the industry standard and there's nothing wrong with them I'm not a fan I'm not a fan of the SVT I've I, I, you know the pro and the all of them I've just never never really dug it um, and I will take the mark base and just sit it on top and before you touch anything anyone else's gear you know you've got to remember that that stage is that stage managers mm. until the clock ticks over and it's yours mm-hmm. and then it's yours for 45 minutes or an hour or an hour and a quarter and then you hand it back to the stage manager the way you found it yeah right so you, hey, I'm just gonna, and a lot, like, they, they see what you're, hand, they, they, you're holding and they know yeah. what you're gonna do and they tell you it's fine. You walk over, make sure the amp's off, unplug the power, unplug the speaker lead, plug your amp in, away you go. And, you know. Yeah, but, don't, don't unplug the speaker with it still turned on and yeah, have it on. All those things, you know, any of those things that, I mean, those things blow up themselves, they don't need you to help, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and it's, it's a workplace. It is a workplace where people are doing 18-hour, 20-hour days. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think production crews get the short stick quite often because the musician, you know, asked for a thing that wasn't on the tech sheet. They didn't email anyone about it. They haven't asked anyone about it. You're asking for it. They crack it because... 
production crews. Um, yeah, well, you know, they, yeah, I think production crews get the shots tick. You know, they're doing massive hours, and yeah, you've got to be able to get on and get off and do your show, and, and the show needs to be stellar. Yeah, you know, um, but making their lives easy, communicating. You know, after an eighteen-hour day, after your third eighteen-hour day mm-hmm. in a row, the snotty bass player that goes, "Oh, can 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 I have the?" Yeah, or plugs everything in and then plugs that into the bass and goes. Yeah, yeah. If you wouldn't do it to your gig, you know your gear at home. Yeah. Don't you know? Yeah, it's um, kind of thing you only do once, and then, and then you learn. Remember, especially it. on a big stage. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, understanding how the monitor sends are actually wired, so when you ask for something through the foldback, you don't look like a dick because it actually doesn't divide that way. Right. Yeah. You know, as simple as when you go on stage. Hey, so. Is it left and right front of stage, or is there four sends across the front, or is it where's the base? Yeah. Where, and knowing that stuff, so when you ask for something that is actually mm. physically unreasonable, you know it before you've asked for it. Sure, you know, um, just comes down to communication, I guess. And it, it's a totally different um, f- vibe, feeling playing on like those big stages and playing in a small room. Oh, it's, know, it's it's really hard. It's yeah, I found I found it really hard. Like I mean, we did the Mornington mm. festival. That was a big stage. It was a big stage with a fridge. Mm-hmm. You know, it's big, the biggest stage. That we, and we're an eight piece band, so yeah. it's not like we were. You know, but even then, it was just like everything is just so much louder and bigger and further away, and the, the audience is further away, and it, you almost get more inside yourself mm. than on a smaller stage with people closer. Oh, definitely, and I mean. Not having a back wall for your amp to come off. Yeah. Like just sonically playing outside is yeah. is is super different. Totally. You know, because you're only hearing it once. Yeah. Um, and there's extremes to the other side that the first, the inaugural Blues and Roots Festival or whatever it is they did here in Melbourne, Blues and, Blues and Music Festival, I think they called it. And it was in Jeff's shed. Um, and you'd hear the snare drum and then you'd hear the snare drum off the back wall, and then you'd hear the snare drum off the opposite wall. So everything sounded like I had a like, you know, a slap back delay on it. And so you're standing in this room trying to play. Yeah, right. And you've just got everything wow. has delay on it, you know? And but at the end of the day you just look at the, look at the bass drum and play to it and <laughs> and, and not cock it up. Yeah. You know? Um but it's all those things and it's a different set of skills it's a different set of learning skills and it's a different set of you know you, you don't just turn up 10 minutes before you play and do your thing like you can kind of get away with playing blues gigs in Melbourne you, know? <laughs> you can stack three gigs on top of each other and literally not have enough time between them and still you know in Melbourne but you um, yeah you don't get to do that yeah you know because it's it's happened in the past where that bass player doesn't turn up. Nobody wants to go have to go looking for somebody on a festival site or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And it well you just you don't stay there. If you're gonna play in that league, mm. you gotta play by the rules, you know, because the next guy will. Yeah. Um Yeah. It's yeah. I dig it. I really dig it. It's good to be it's good to be scared by gigs occasionally. Mm. It's good to be kind of mammothed by the reality of what you're about to do. 
um, and pull it off and get away with it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> get away with it. <laughs> that. Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I can't imagine. I mean, and there, there's always a bigger stage. It's just like, there's always, you know, when you learn that new thing, you learn that new lick and you turn up to a gig and you're like, oh, I'm going to destroy this gig. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the best solo. I'm going to get my solo and it, it's going to be awesome. And then the guy calls a solo in a different song and you're in a different key and <laughs> you're trying to work out how that fits in that key because you've still got the lick. And then you look up and, and like Becker's in the front row and you're just like, oh, doesn't matter what I learned today because, you know. Yeah. I get eaten alive by that guy, you know, and it's 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 always good to stay humble and, and mm. but be pushed, you know, and be scared of that next thing. Yeah. Which is that big stage, that big festival stage at the moment for me, you know. Yeah. Playing to eleven thousand people at a time or yeah. playing to you know. It's good. It's healthy. Yeah, man. Seems like a good place to kind of wrap it up. Yeah. I think. Cool. Tons of awesome stuff in there, man. Well, I hope I haven't made myself like too much of a knob. And <laughs> not at all. I'll, I will edit it so you look like a knob. Yeah, yeah. You send me one copy and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> look, you're not a knob at all. No, there's, like, there's the one that goes on the internet. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. Anyway, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having Making me. Stuff. Yeah. Thank you very much. Ben Mix, everybody. Um, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all of it. Thanks, one, man. See ya. Cool.